This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. All right, good evening, everybody. Thank you so much for coming out here to this uh, event. I wanted to give a humongous shout-out to Avi and Esther Wiederman, who took the initiative, who had this idea to bring this out here. And for all of you for responding, I've been involved in many um, events, and it's usually about an hour before the event that the first person decides that it's a good idea to RSVP and tell you that they're interested or that they saw like a flyer or that whatever it is. It's just a testament to how many friends Avi and Esther have, that so many people responded on the first day, and this is really beautiful that we needed a larger location in order to accommodate everybody. So kudos to you for being so responsive, that's really beautiful. Um, before we start, just tonight's event should be as a Rufo Shalema for Amelia Bas Esther, as well as a Frat Bas Ushra, who both should have Kayach, and they should be well and have Rufo Shalema in Hashem very soon, Bekarv. Tzipor Bas Chayasara. Tzipor Bas Chayasara as well. Um, okay, you have um, many questions that have been emailed in. Some of them were personal in nature, so we're going to try to censor some of them to uh, accommodate that, and we'll try to maybe deal with some of these questions on a bit of a broader, more generic um, principle base so that we can get out a bunch of ideas over here. Um, <laughs> we're going for the jugular here, according to Rabbi Wallerstein, so we'll, we'll, we'll go with one of the harder um, questions, but it's actually one of the first questions that was submitted over here. All right. question goes as follows. Why does it appear... You guys can hear me in the back? You're good? Back there? Everybody hears? Front row seats. Good. All right. This is like my classroom. Everybody sits in the back. <laughs> and then I make all the guys in the back sit in the front, and all the kids who sit in the front sit in the back. <laughs> so if, if you want to come closer, you're invited. We don't, we don't bite. We don't bite. Nobody's biting here. Um, just don't bite back. Okay, so the, the first question is as follows. Why does it appear, I'm reading this question as submitted, that women are seemingly considered second-class citizens in Judaism? I once heard a man say that men are superior to women. That's just the way it is. And this is how the Jewish men are being taught. Specifically, why do men make specifically why do men make the bracha of Shalai Sani Isha for not creating me as a woman? Especially when our religion is one that's meant to focus on positive, I would think that it's more appropriate if they would say, Sha'asani Ish, you made me a man. Why are you saying that you didn't make me a woman? Or, or men should just simply say, Shasani Kirtono, you made me like you made me, the way women say, you made me the way you made me. Were women created to serve men? That is this loaded question. Rabbi Wallerstein, good luck. <laughs> so first of all, it's a, it's a um, totally misconceived Judaism is run by women because for a Jew to be a Jew, his mother has to be Jewish. So when women think that it's very chauvinistic, it's very, it's very, it's about all, it's about men. It's not about the man at all because the man can be Jewish if the woman's not Jewish, the children are not Jewish. So Judaism goes by the mother. So that makes her in a much more important position than the man. That's number one. Um, all the holidays that we have, most of them. The one that's coming up right now, which is Hanukkah. Yehudis, there were the Maccabees, but there was also Yehudis in the story of Yehudis, who, who actually, if you read the actual story, the Maccabees were not doing well um, when Yehudis cut off the general's head and put it, on, put it in a bag 
carried it out of the Greek encampment, put it on the wall of Yerushalayim, and when the Greeks saw their general's head on the wall of Yerushalayim, that's when they started to panic and run, and that's when the Maccabees chased them down. That's, that's Yehudis and Hanukkah, that's Rus, who is called Eim HaMalchus, right, who is David HaMelech and Mashiach, that's Esther, which is, um, which is of, of course, which is Purim. Um, in Mitzrayim, coming up in Shemos, Yocheved and, Miri, Yocheved and Miriam were the ones who saved the Jewish kids. Uh, Sar Yimein was the one who threw Yishmael out. Rivka Yimein was the one who saved Yaakov's life from being killed by, by Esau. So women are very important in Judaism. It's just, it's a misconception because men, we wear tefillin and we wear tzitzes. So that this, this is, has been a subject that I've spoken about many times. This bracha shasani kitsono. And there are so many women that would like to say shalosani ish. Would make them a lot happier to say, thank you Hashem, I'm not a man. And they're not happy saying, I'm the will of Hashem. Why do women have that bracha? That you are the will of Hashem. And Rav Chaim Kayaneski, who I definitely feel is the will of Hashem, I think we'll all agree, that Rav Chaim the Gadol Hadar is the will of Hashem. And if he makes that bracha, it's a bracha levatala. So any Jewish woman can get up in the morning, right, and make a bracha, Hashem, I'm your will, and the biggest gedol, the Chavetz Chaim. Chavetz Chaim can't make, couldn't make that bracha. So that's a big compliment, that you can make a bracha that the Gal Hadar cannot make. Why do you make a bracha Shoshani Katsona? It makes you better. I'm not the Ratzon Hashem. Me, really, there should be two women sitting at this table tonight, because myself and Rabbi Epstein are not the Ratzon We can't make that bracha tomorrow morning. We make a bracha Shalai Isha, and the reason we make that bracha is because a woman does not have all the mitzvahs that a man has. So we say, thank you, Hashem, that I'm not a woman, because I can put on tillin, and I can wear tzitzis, and I can be part of a minion. So we're thanking Hashem that we have all 613 mitzvahs, that women don't have 613 mitzvahs, because they are they have the pitur of a mitzvah shazman grama, that they're busy with their children, and therefore Hashem says, you're busy with your children... So anything that has a set time, being that at that point you might be might be nursing the baby, you might be changing the baby, you might be taking your kids to, to school. So Hashem said, "Listen, I can't make you do all the mitzvahs if there's a time set on it, because at that time you might be busy. So therefore, you're part of from mitzvahs of mind grandma because you're more important. We're not men are not, and Shirasani Kitsono is for one reason only: a woman." is a nurturer. She's, she's built physically to nurse a child. So she's physically a nurturer. A man is not a nurturer. We cannot nurture a child. A woman is a creator. She has a womb. A man does not have a womb. And a woman is a protector. She protects her children. Even in the animal kingdom, the mother the lion is the one that protects the children. God is a nurturer, creator, and a protector. So when you make a bracha shosani kitsono, what you're saying is that I am God's will. I am a nurturer, I am a creator, and I am a protector. And that's why you get to make the bracha. Not because you're less than a man, but because you're more than a man. I wish that I could tomorrow morning stand in front of Hashem and, sh- and say shosani kitsono. Hashem, I am your will. But I do not have those physical abilities to nurture and to and to have a womb and to create and all that. So therefore, the biggest tzaddik in the world cannot make the bracha that any woman, any woman, 
can make a bracha. So it's, it's whoever asks this question doesn't have a deep understanding and me and and I think where it comes from and it's not a subject that I'm going to go into. I've just been involved in the subject in my seminary very very much. I think the underlying whoever asks this question is the tznius problem that men don't have the halachas of tznius like women have and women are pretty upset about that. A guy can can walk in he shouldn't be walking into shul in his shorts. But it's not a problem of tzniyus if he's wearing shorts, and therefore we don't have. I, I don't understand. I do understand that. You know, the first thing when kids go off the derech, girls go off the derech. The first thing they do is change from a skirt into a pair of pants. First thing. But I never saw a guy go off the derech and change into a skirt. We we don't have for some reason men don't have that yet. Sahara, I mean, you know, you're Scottish and you're wearing a kilt, but that's not a skirt exactly. Whatever it is, we don't have a yet Sahara to wear a skirt. Most of us, anyway, don't have a yet Sahara to wear a skirt. But they're right away. So it's a, so the minute that, that women have a restriction, which is this sneeze restriction, and you got to cover your hair, and men don't have to cover their hair, and we can wear pants, and you can wear all this all these different restrictions. So right away, I'm a second class citizen. No, you're a first class citizen. The Queen of England, I know you hate to hear that because that's what you heard in school all the time about the Queen in England, but she dresses differently. She doesn't wear pants. She only wears them when she's underneath her dress when she's on a horse. And that's not very often lately. But, but the, the, the woman, Sneos, is also because she is Kirtsono. She's on a higher, spiritually a woman is on a higher level than a man. So I, I, I think many times when I deal with this question from women, it's that it's because we have to do this and we have to do that and you guys don't have to do that. Yeah, but we have to go to Minion three times a day and we have to put on tulin and we have to wear scissors. I'd rather do that than the than have, than my skirt and my hair and everything else. It's not a question of rather. Each each one of us has different different places in in, in this world, but it is an honor to make a bracha shirsani kitsano. And the, the women of, of Kla Yisrael have been always, Rachel Imenu was the only one that Hashem listened to. And he said that I will listen to you when your children are crying. Not Avram Yitzhak Yaakov, the Medrash in Eicha, says not Avram Yitzhak Yaakov and Moshe, but Rachel Imenu. So there, it's, it's, it's something to be very proud of. And when you make that bracha in the morning, you just have to think to yourself, am I the Ratzon of Hashem? Am I acting Shashani Kitsono? Am I acting that way? Shaloh Yisani Isha, Shaloh Yisani Aved, Shaloh Yisani Goy, all those brachas that we make is because we have mitzvahs, and a guy doesn't have mitzvahs, and an Eved doesn't have mitzvahs, and a woman doesn't have as many mitzvahs as us. That's what, all that it's based on. To answer that question. I'm just, I'm just preempting for the next answer here. Um, all right, so uh, thank you, Rabbi Wallenstein. I, I, I was thinking when I saw this question where exactly this was coming from as well. Um, I, I, I have my own theories as to where I think it's coming from, which I'll get to in, in just a minute. But there is a, a part here that I think most people tend to overlook when they ask this question, because the question is a is a landmine filled question, because it's there's certain things that when we hear like the word sneeze, we we get like like we clamp up, we get nervous. It's like when somebody says the word lashon hara, we get very nervous like when we hear that. And we hear about women's women versus men, people get very nervous. So it, it's there's actually a, a very interesting. I want to talk about the bracha parts first, and then I'll, I'll deal with the uh, 
the social economic side first. I mean, the first thing is I grew up, I have five older sisters. And never ever in my life did I think that men were better than women because they let me know on a daily basis that, that we are not better than women and that by the grace of God my parents were blessed with a boy but that was never the, the plan. So I, I, I've learned this from when I was very, very young that women are, are, are important. But there is an idea here and the idea is when we get up in the morning most people say moda'ani and it's basically just like half groggy sleeping and you're fighting with half of your brain that's telling you what are you doing just get back into bed. And then we mumble our way through and we sort of get to where we're getting to. But there is a little bit of a deeper understanding when you get up in the morning what exactly you're saying. The altar of Sabatka, he says that when you get up in the morning you say the words Maida'ani, what you're saying is thank you Hashem for giving me the kayach habechira, the ability to choose what I'm going to do today. Thank you. I appreciate it. And the first bracha that we say, is a recognition that every person says every single morning that you have everything that you need to fulfill your purpose today. Probably... Most people never think that ever in their lives. But that's what, it, that's what you're saying. Hashem, thank you for giving me the ability to choose what I'm going to do. And two, the capacity, the ability to do what I need to do today. But now, you might say to yourself, one minute, it's not fair. That person doesn't have to do what I have to do. So then why can't I just do what they have to do? Why can't I take a different path in life? So therefore you say, Shalayasani Gai, Shalayasani Avet, Shalayasani Isha. I have no excuses. I have no lesser responsibilities of a guy, of a Avet, of a woman. They have their roles in their world, and I have my place in my world. I have no excuse not to do exactly the reason why God put me on this planet this morning. Now you might think that I'm just making this up. But the Tesefta, which brings down this bracha, says that reason. He says that when you get up in the morning, you have to accept upon yourself that today is a new day. Not to go on Instagram, and not to watch YouTube, and not to go to work even. It's to get up to be an Eved Hashem and to serve God today. And to ask yourself, what are all the things that Hashem gave me? All my abilities, all my money, all my talents, all my strengths, all my knowledge, my family, my know-how, my friends, my people... My community, he gave that to me so that I can live my day to its fullest potential. And I have no reason why I can't today. None at all. No excuses. That's a very deep understanding responsibility for every person when they get up in the morning. Most people just go, wait, I'm a little annoyed at that one, and we go on. It's not a negative thing at all. It's an understanding of each person's role and every single person in this room and every person watching online. We all have different roles and different purposes. Your kavana during those moments, which are key moments to your day because you're starting off your job for that day, is God, I'm not taking the easy way out. I'm going to live my day with no excuses today. So that's in terms of the bracha. It's such a beautiful, beautiful bracha when you think about it that way. It's a beautiful idea. It's I got up this morning with responsibility and I will not shirk my responsibility today. It puts a little bit of like an oomph into your day. Like, oh, wow, I gotta be up. You know, like I'm on duty right now. I'm serving God. 
Most of us just go like, oh gosh, you know, another day, Modani, whatever. You get up, you have a responsibility that day. There is another side of this, which is, I think, that social side of the question. And that is, women were created, along with men, to help each other fulfill our purpose in this world. A woman is an Azer Kenegdo. An Azer is an helpmate. A man is put into this world with the direction to connect to his wife. I deal very extensively with couples, with marriages, and I can tell you that 9 out of 10 complaints that come to me, let me take a step back, 98% of complaints that come to me originate by women. Okay, They originate by women. They say, I have a complaint. Men, three or four sessions in... They don't care. They, they're, they, they're not really sure what they're doing there. right? They're not 100% clear on the matter. So that's just how it works, right? And, and statistically, nationwide, if you would Google, if you would Google, you know, marriage complaints, you will find that that's overwhelmingly how it is. The men, we, we, we live in our own bubble, in our own world. We get caught up with a lot of things. The women were there as an azer to help us, to show us the beauty of connecting to someone else. And if you were to narrow down, that complaint, that moment where she's locking herself in her room and she's upset and she's giving you the silent treatment, usually she's saying one thing. She's saying, you disconnected. You didn't care about me, you prioritized something else, you, you weren't in tune to me, you didn't understand me. That's usually what women are complaining about. And men are usually like, again? And the answer is, yeah, again. Because we live our lives davening without meaning and learning without meaning and doing everything without meaning. And women are there as an Azer, as a helpmate, to say to us, men, dude, <laughs> wake up. I'm not going to be happy if you're just going through the motions. You have to put some heart and soul into it. You have to connect to me. And her job is to make that a really enjoyable experience that he wants to connect. It's something I always say, I teach this to whoever's willing to listen, is that most people, most women, women ask yourself this question, what is the most romantic thing your husband can say to you? If, they, if you think the answer is I love you, you're wrong. Because I have had couples in my house who walked out of my house divorcing each other. Literally, he's walking right and she's walking left. And they go, I love you, see you later. And they literally walk you know, in different directions. I've had Hassanim call me with questions after their marriage. So they ask me a question, I give them the answer, and they go, all right, Rabbi, I love you, and they hang up. And then they come back and go, did I just say I love you? Yeah, I'm just used to saying it. We're really good at that, man. Like, you know, you get us into that habit, we'll say it, and it's good. The most romantic thing your husband can say to you is not I love you. When he says that, he's lying. <laughs> the most romantic thing he could say is I had the hardest day ever, I couldn't wait to come home to you. When he says that, A, you are doing the best job you could ever imagine. Because him saying I love you is just, I just love him saying it. When he actually means that, and you can't train a guy to say those words, by the way. You can't train him. You know what I'm saying? Because you know if he wants to be home. He's not going to come home if he doesn't want to be home. So when he's coming home, he says, I had the hardest day. I can't wait to come home, put my phone away, just sit down and talk. Just me and you. Can we just have a few moments? Right? Most women would faint if their husbands would say that. Right? You'd faint. They'd be like, are you no, okay? They would, they would say, what did you do wrong? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like, like, what's wrong with you? Well, what did something you... happened. Yeah, what, what happened? <laughs> that's, what, that's what's going on. 
You are doing your job at that moment. So when a person says, and this was part of the question, when a woman says that a guy says to a woman, men are superior to women, that's just the way it is. That man is probably not a very happily married man. You know what I'm saying? That, that is not a person who is respecting the most important person in this world, who was put there to help him achieve his purpose every day by reminding him that, hey, you can't just glaze through this life just doing your own thing. You have to actually connect to me, connect to your davening, connect to your learning, go out and learn a little bit, be a respectable person. And I believe that where this question is coming from is that if more men would be men, women would be, they would never have this feeling ever. If men were men, we have a man problem. You know, we don't have a marriage crisis, we have a man problem. If men would be men, then women would be so happy. This guy gives to me, he's respectable, he learns, he davens, I look up to him. Right? The idea of, he's in charge. What does it mean he's in charge? To set emotion for the family. This is who we are, this is what we stand for, this is what we do, these are our principles. If men would be men, you think a woman wouldn't even think this. Like, I'm the luckiest person in the world that I'm married to this guy. When, when we put it into a context of how it's supposed to be, there's no idea of, why, why are you saying Shalai Isha? Because you hate me? Because you're looking down at me? Not at all. It's, I have a responsibility every day, and you turn to your wife and you say, thank you. Thank God that I married you because you are helping me to understand what I need to do today. That, I think, would solve a lot of this problem in a heartbeat. Alright, question two. Question two is as follows. Please discuss the background and general practical halachos regarding... Oh, by the way, before I read this. Um, if anybody has anything you want to throw out there, not like, uh, what's it called, soapboxing? We just like, what's it called? No, I'm talking about pontificating, like we're just getting up. Not if you just want to rant. I'm saying if you have something that you want to say, you came out here and please feel free to speak your mind. We're... Uh, we're open to hearing things that are not necessarily submitted before. Good? You good? Awesome. Okay. Alright, so please discuss the background and practical halachos regarding women covering their hair. Skip it. Skip it. Big question. We're not, we're not, I mean, unless you want to be a halachic authority. I'm not, I don't have smisha, so I'm not asking. <laughs> if, you want to, if you want to get into that subject, you can go ahead, but I wouldn't if I were you. Okay, I will follow my mentor and Rebbe and guide um, Rebbe Wallace on that one. Okay. Um, we could talk about that after. All right. The big okay. Here's here's the next question. Simple question, but a very powerful question. And that is, why do bad things happen to good people? Why are there people that are dealing with so many hardships in their life? Um, what's going on? <laughs> you have good people, and they're they're struggling, and they're suffering, and they're dealing with so many um, so many things, which it's like it's it's overwhelming. Can you discuss why it is that good things happen? Bad things happen to good people. People are doing what they got to do. Things, and good things happen to bad people. And good things happen to bad people, which sometimes make you say, like, what's going on over here? Rabbi. That's a question Moshe Rabbeinu asked Hashem. And Hashem said, unless I show you from the beginning of the world to the end of the world, you would not understand. So Hashem did not answer that question. David HaMelech asked Hashem that question. Why do, why do bad things happen to good people? And... Hashem said the same thing. We, we cannot understand. We're not on a level to understand. Um, I deal with a lot of atheists. Well, kids who 
think they're atheists. Um, they can't spell the word atheism, but they they got rid of God because he was in their way. It's you know it's just it's a it's an answer to their behaviors usually, and um, you either believe in God or you don't believe in God. There's no in between. There's no two gods. There's not if God. There's either a God or there's not a God. I've never met. I'm, I'm doing this for 42 years. Not atheist, but atheist probably the last 20 years. Um, and I've never met a happy one in 20 years. Nobody ever walked into my room and said, What's up, Rabbi Wallstein? How you doing? I'm an atheist. They all walk in like, What? How do you know there's Hashem? Prove me there's Hashem. There's no Hashem. They're miserable. Miserable. You're not going to meet a happy one. Why? Because if you're an atheist, that means there's no God. If there's no God, they believe in the theory of randomness, which means that things happen out of random. It's a theory. It's actually a theory in physics. And just stuff happens. The world was created because two neurons bounced into each other, exploded, and you got Earth, and you got the sun, and you got the moon, and just stuff happens, right? And if that's the case, if you're living your life in a world of randomness, that means that this person's rich and this person's poor for no reason, just luck. But what is luck? If you don't, if you don't believe in anything, what is luck? There's just no reason. This person's sick. This person's healthy, no reason. Hurricane, no reason. Earthquake, no reason. Nothing has a reason. There's no hashgacha practice. Now, you can believe that, and usually people are smart enough to know that nothing comes from nothing. So we can't even create as humans with all our scientific, a grain of sand. We can, we can take things that Hashem created, put them together, split an atom, we can clone things, but all those things are there already. We cannot create, human being has never created anything. So deep down, if you tell someone that this box of tissues just happened, they're going to tell you you're out of your mind, but then how could the world have just happened? So usually you're an atheist, either because you're extremely intelligent, you're a physicist, you're extremely intelligent, but if God gave intelligence to the world, then you don't deserve any, you're nothing special. Hashem gave it to you, so you got to get rid of God, because otherwise, who am I? I'm nothing. He gave, me, he gave me my wisdom. He gave me the ability. He gave me the IQ that I have. He gave me the memory that I had. So I don't want to give credence to any being in the world that you helped me become who I am, because I want to take the credit. Or you just want to do some bad stuff, and God's, God, if God's in the world, then you can't do that stuff. But people really know that there's a HaKadosh Baruch Hu, and people really know that um, that there's a creator so you're either one of the two if you don't believe in God then everything's random this, this question is not on the table why do good things happen to people and bad things happen to people random just stuff happens you do, you do percentages and that's what they do in physics enough percentages of something one, one of those molecules is going to jump out. One of those cells is going to become cancer because it's that long in the body and they have their reasons. That's just random. So if you don't believe that, and, and there's only two things. You either believe in God or you don't believe it. If you believe there's a God, then nothing is random. Either everything is random 
where nothing is random. Because God doesn't do some things random, some things not. So that means nothing is random. Once I believe that everything in this world has a purpose, then pain, bad, good, and everything in between has a purpose and doesn't happen randomly. If it doesn't happen randomly, and I believe that God is a good being and a creator, then I have to accept, even though even though I don't understand. I mean, you can there's a million different. You know, you walk into a doctor's office and, and you're a savage and you're coming out of the woods and you know nothing about civilization and you walk into your first doctor's office and you walk into an examining room and the doctor is standing there with a needle in his hand, you know, just making sure that the fluid's coming out of it. And the mother and father are the father's holding the hands of the baby down and the mother's holding the legs of the baby down and this guy's sticking a needle into this baby's thigh and you're a savage and you never saw anything in your life, you're like, oh my God, these people are evil. They take their children, he goes back to tell the, the, the rest of the Indians what's going on, they hold their children down and they stick needles in them. Like voodoo. So, so of course, because you're a savage, you don't know that that's penicillin. You don't know that he has pneumonia. You don't know that this doctor just saved that child. Because you're a savage and you don't understand medicine or an open heart surgery where the guy's opening a guy's chest and you never saw anything like that. And you're thinking like, oh my God, they steal hearts. They open people's hearts and they steal their hearts. Like, forget it. It would be a monster movie. Right? So, so once, and, and I talk about this all the time, once you accept that it's not a theory of randomness, that there is hashkacha pratis, then I don't need to understand. Because I can't. And that's tzaddik v'ralo, and that's what Hashem told Moshe Rabbeinu. If you really want to understand, I have to take you from the first day of creation until Mashiach and show you everything. And I'm not destroying the world to do that. And therefore, even Moshe Rabbeinu had this question, didn't get the answer. So you got to be in one of those two camps. You either believe in God, or you don't believe in God. You can't believe a little in God. It's either He's here, and then whatever He does is the opposite of randomness. It has hashkacha pratis. Everything has a reason. Or you live in a, you live in a world of everything has a reason, or you live in a world where nothing has a reason. Those are the two worlds. So Tzadik Viralo, there's nobody that could explain it. Because really deep, deep down, there's no such thing. What do you mean? Rabbi Wallstein, I see good people suffering. If you believe that Rallo, that it's bad for him, then you don't believe in God. There's no Tzadik Viralo. It looks to you like Viralo. But if you really believe in God, then you, if you believe that Sadiq Viralo, then you believe that God is bad. If there's a p- good person and it's bad for him, life is bad for him, then you believe that there's a God in this world that is going to hurt a good person for no reason. So a person who really believes Sadiq Viralo doesn't believe in Hashem. The person who asked that question, now, Moshe Abedu, you didn't believe in Hashem? Moshe Abedu wanted to understand it. And Hashem said it's not for a human being to understand. Only God can understand. So there really is no Tzadik Viralo. There really is no Gamzu Latova. Oh, this is also for good that I missed the plane. You know, every time I miss a plane, I figure it's going to crash. Sometimes I even call up or follow it on the computer to see if it got to California. Because if I miss the plane, it must be it's for my good. Right? I ran up to the door and they closed it on me. They depth all those people that are on the plane. I hope I don't know anybody. And then every time I follow the plane on flight, whatever data, right? 
Not only did it make it to California, but it landed 20 minutes early. <laughs> so the bottom line is we don't, we can't figure it out. And, and it's, it's, it's a Muna and it's, it's not, I'm not telling you that it's easy, but it's, it's either God, you're good and it looks bad, but it's, but you're good or there is no bad God. I, I think it's better to believe there's no God than to believe there's a bad God. I think Hashem would rather you don't believe in Him at all than you believe that He's this monster sitting up there in Shemayim and hurting people and giving them cancer and, and children dying young and all the stuff that we see. That If you think that's what Hashem does up there and that's what He wants to do and then He wants to, when you get to Shemayim finally after everything, He puts in this big barbecue and they keep turning you over and Gehenim. Is He ready? Is she ready yet? Is it done? Is she, is she done yet? That's Christianity. That's not Judaism. That's not Judaism. I'm not even going to say what I think but it's very possible that our, percep- our whole perception of punishment, all this other, it's, it's not punishment, first of all. God is not a punishing God. It's consequence. There's a very big difference. The difference between punishment and consequence, especially when you bring up your children, if you tell your daughter to be home at 11, she's home, she shows up at 11.30, you're like, oh yeah, you show up at 11.30, all the doors are locked, sleep in the park. That's punishment. That is unfair, and that is totally not healthy, and it's not going to work. Consequences, Shayfullah, at 11 o'clock, we're closing the house, we're locking it. If you decide to come at 11.15, I didn't punish you. The consequence of showing up at 11.15 when a house is locked at 11 is you're not going to get into the house. So you, you go to a restaurant that closes in Cedarhurst at 10 o'clock, you show up at 11, they don't like you, they're punishing you, the lights are off. What do you mean? Why are you... Why, why isn't there any food? Why isn't anyone serving me? Why are you punishing me? I'm a good person. Like, we're closed. They're putting the chairs on the table. We're, we're closed. The chef, I mean, I don't know if you've had, but it happens to me all the time. The chef went home. The kitchen's closed. You can start screaming, why are you punishing me? We're not punishing you. You showed up at 11. We closed at 10. So Kodesh Baruch Hu, God, when he gave us the Torah, he didn't say, if you do something wrong, I'm going to figure out how to punish you. He tells you in the Torah everything that you do, skiless, rainfall, whatever it is, the consequence for your soul to fix it after you do this and this, this is what it is. Malchus, whatever it is, this is what it is. Meanwhile, Bezdin never sent a person to their death. With all the different things, Hashem put all these little loopholes, right, that if all 71 judges say guilty, you're innocent. What kind of loophole is that? Every one of the judges, 71 judges out of 71 judges says, this guy, he killed the guy in front of the court. This guy, we're all saying guilty. The halacha is, he's free. Why? Because if there's not one person on that judge, on that bezin, that could find something good, must be you missed something. God put in so many loopholes that there was never, that a bezin that killed one person was called a killer bezin. So he doesn't want you to die, and he doesn't want you to burn, and all this other stuff. That's just the way to get kids to do things. It's it's wrong. It's very bad chinuch. The word Gehenim is never written in the Torah. The word Ganeiden in the whole parsha is the four rivers to Ganeiden, and then and the sword by Ganeiden, and it talks about Ganeiden and Aden and Ganeiden talks about it a lot. It doesn't talk about Gehenim. There's no such word. There's a word in the Torah that's translated to mean that that's what it means. The word Gehenim you'll never find in the Torah. It's not the way to bring up children. It's not the way to be mechanic children. That, 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 that you're going to burn and you're going to be punished. And the only reason that certain schools did it and do it is because to scare you takes a moment. 
to get you to not to do something because you love Hashem, because you respect Hashem, that takes a lot of work. Much easier to say, anyone who does this, anyone who's Mechal Shabbos, you're going to burn, you're going to be, you're going to, the Malachim are going to whip you, in. oh my God, the kid's like, oh no, no, right? But it doesn't work for a long time. The other way to explain what Shabbos is and the love of Shabbos and that Hashem wants to spend 26 hours with you once a week, an unbelievable date, and God pays for the date, says whatever you spend on Shabbos, I spend a lot of money on Shabbos. Because it says whatever you spend on Shabbos, you're going to get back. God's an amazing dater. An amazing dater. Whatever you spend, tablecloth, china, food, whatever you spend on the day, I got it covered, says Hashem. I want to spend 26 hours with you. It's very different than scaring somebody. And one of the problems in our education is that we, a lot of people, it's, it's just a fast way of getting the kids to listen, is we scare them. And then they don't have, we don't understand why don't they have a relationship with God? Because, because it's scary. It's not the way parents should bring up children. It has to come, me'ava, everything has to come from love. Discipline, but from love. So, this question is a moot question. Because there's no tzaddik viralo. This tzaddik, it looks bad. But there's no such thing as Hashem is bad to a tzaddik. That's my answer. I rest my case. Before you, before you get to your thing. Um, so I, I have a I have a friend who's um, he's going through a very hard time right now. And I don't know if I'm the only one who, who feels this, but during the day I practice accounting. I'm a tax and forensic accountant. At night I deal with some other things. And I, I just I noticed that it just seems like now, I don't know, maybe it's like the winter or something, but like over the last few weeks, the amount of like heartbreaking things that I've been hearing personally, the people who I know is is it's 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 heartbreaking. It really like it's heartbreaking. I had somebody in my office yesterday, he was he was crying at how much money he owes people. Like he was like falling like he was falling apart. He's like I, I can't sleep, I can't eat, I can't I, I can't even breathe. I have another friend who has a daughter who's very, very ill. And they thought that she was gonna get better and unfortunately now She's not really doing so great. So on the way here, before I left, I sent him a text. You know, just thinking about you, hope you're doing well. And then I realized that all too often people find it easy to just send a text because it's easy to just be like, yay, you know, like, hey, what's up? But to actually pick up the phone and call and whatever is like a little bit harder. So I said, you know, let me call him and see how he's doing. So I gave him a call and I said, how you doing? So he says... I don't know if you heard, but I moved from Brooklyn to the city. I said, really? Moved to Manhattan? Are you crazy? Like, what's going on? You know, you have a family, like 10 kids? He says, yeah, we moved right into Sloan Kettering. I was like, oh, you're killing me right now. What are you saying? So he says, yeah, we're back and we're going through some stuff. And it's it's very hard. It's not easy. So I want to share with you what he told me on the drive here. I'll never be able to articulate it the way he did, but it is such a powerful idea that I think everyone can relate to. And the way he put it down was so clear and amazing. There is an idea brought from the Ramban that the Ramban says that every difficulty in your life, it helps bring you min hakayach el hapayel, which means from your potential to your actualization. If anybody here smokes or smoked, 
you know what I'm talking about. Like you, you convince yourself and your family, right, all the time that you can stop. You're like, yeah, I could do that. I could do this. Sure, no problem. I could do this in a minute. Sure, I could stop any time. Sure, I could, I could do this any time. So why don't you? No, I, didn't. I just don't want it. I mean, I could. I could do this any time. I quit 50 times already. I'm really good at this. You know, somebody told me a bad joke. He's like, the, the guy, what? I'm good at quitting. Right, I'm good at quitting, right. The, the guy who's, you know, not good at marriage, like, he does it the most. You know, he does it more than anybody. Um, so it's like, yeah. It, it's like, I'm, I'm really good at this. I could always do this. Um, my life says some of my jokes go over people's heads, which is fine. Those of you who got it, great. All right, those of you who didn't, you'll find out soon what the joke was. Um, so, um, there is this idea that when you're when you're in a pressurized situation, it, it it gets you to stop thinking about what you could, what you could, what you could, and it sort of makes your life really real. Like, no, you're not gonna like think twice about this. So this friend said to me, on a personal level, just between him and me, he's like, I, I just have to tell you something. He's like, I've never felt Hashem more than sitting in Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. Never. We all, he's like, why was I put here? This guy's like a tzaddik. I mean, he's a tzaddik. He says, I'm just a shmagegi from Brooklyn. Like, you're not a shmagegi from Brooklyn. You're, you're like a gadol from Brooklyn. He's amazing. He's like, how many times did I say to myself over the course of my life, I wish I could daven harder. I wish I could daven stronger. I could. What do you have kavana? Yeah, I sure I had kavana. I tuned in for nine seconds during a 45-minute chakra. I, I had a lot of kavana today. He's like, you know how many times I told that to myself? A thousand times. A million times. Every day I say that to myself three times a day. Yeah, I had tons of kavana, but mincha was great. I had so much kavana. He's like, when I'm sitting here in Sloan Kettering Cancer Center, do you understand the Shemina Esri I'm davening? He's like, there's nothing in life that can make a Shemina Esri like that. Nothing. He's like, and to say that I'm grateful for cancer would sound like I'm, I'm, I'm a sadistic person. It's my own daughter. He's like, but I am grateful that Hashem has brought out from me something that is so deep inside of me that I would never be able to access ever in normal circumstances. I don't think you can understand how much gvura, how much strength it takes to say those words while saying I am now currently living in Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. For a man to say that, I feel closer to Hashem than I ever felt in my entire life, and I therefore am grateful for that opportunity. Is it's it's unbelievable. Min hakayach el I think I could. I think I could. He said to me, "Do you understand that my relationship with money completely changed? Before this, I want to make my money. I have money. I have money. My car. My this. Oh, I got a dent. Got a scratch. It's like, are you kidding me? Are you kidding me right now? That's your complaint." He's like, my whole perspective on life changed. If I would work for a hundred years, I would never get the outlook on life that I'm getting here in a matter of weeks and months. Never. He's like, isn't that the greatest gift that God could give me? Clarity, understanding my purpose in life. Why am I put into this world? What am I here for? He said, he went to visit Rabbi Yislav Berkowitz, who's, who's my Rebbe, he's now the Rosh Hashiva of Eishat Torah. The Jerusalem call. And Rabbi Berkowitz told him, he said, when you are sitting in, in the hospital, he says, you don't realize it, but your body is changing without doing anything. You're looking at the IV dripping. You're just sitting there looking at your daughter. He says, you don't realize that you're undergoing a metamorphosis. Your whole body is changing. Your emotions are changing. 
your brain is changing, your hashkafa in the world is changing, your outlook, everything is changing. You don't even realize it happening. He says you are becoming from good to great during these moments. So he told me that his daughter turned to him a couple days ago. She's 17 years old. And she said, Pa, Abba, this is really hard. Like, why can't I just be in school, in camp? This is, this is hard. This is not easy. So he told his daughter this idea. He said, the reason why most people do not become great is because they exist within their comfort zones. Yeah, I could do that. It would be very hard for me, so I'm not. But I could. We convince ourselves that we could. But we don't want to because it's just more comfortable to do what we're doing. Great people push themselves past their comfort zone into something that is uncomfortable for them. They learn more. They have more stamina. They push themselves to an area that's not just their everyday life. So he said to his daughter, do you understand that here in this hospital, Hashem is stripping away your comfort zone? You could not be more uncomfortable at this moment. And what's happening to you is Hashem has selected you for greatness. One day when you're dealing with a financial crisis, you will be the strongest person. You'll be able to deal with this more than anybody else. A Shalom Bayez problem, well, you'll be able to deal with this. You will not fall apart. A child who needs something, you will be able to deal with this. You'll be able to start organizations and deal with those financial pressures. You'll be able to do anything in the world that you want to do because Hashem is taking you and perfecting you. He is telling you right now, I have selected you for greatness. I selected your family for greatness. Because the key to greatness is pushing yourself beyond your comfort zone. And certain people, Hashem says to you, <laughs> let me show you what that feels like. It's not so comfortable. So we look at it as bad, as raw. And we go, hey, if I'm a good guy, why are you making it uncomfortable for me? Hashem says, because you're not a good guy. You're a great guy. You're an amazing guy. I'm going to make you into the greatest possible version of yourself. And you see all those other people, bah, they're going to hit mediocre at best. They'll try, they'll convince themselves that they could have done great things in life. But you? I want you. You work for me like everyone else works for me. But you I'm selecting and I'm showing you what it feels like to go beyond your comfort zone without any choice. Because I have a huge master plan for you, what you're going to accomplish in your life. I remember years ago when I was studying for my CPA exam and the grueling hours that I was putting in, I was not sleeping. And when I got married, I told my wife, I said, I, I don't need a lot of things. Like if I don't eat, like it's fine. If I don't eat supper, like I'll be okay. Like tonight I didn't eat supper, like oh, I'll be okay. Sleep? If I don't have sleep? Man alive. Like I just, I, I, I can't. I just, I can't. I can't function. I'm like, I'm like a mess. I, I need my sleep. I remember it was during that like year, year and a half of studying for the CPA exam. I was pulling crazy hours. I was getting up at four in the morning. I was going to sleep at one in the morning. I was just pushing and pushing and pushing. I remember afterwards, when I passed that exam, which at, they give you the results at, at, at two o'clock in the morning, they post like your ID number and, and the result. When you get that final result, it's like, wow, you're a CPA. So we waited up, it's two o'clock in the morning and we got that result, like boom, like you passed. We were like jumping and screaming. My son, who at the time was like three years old, he came in like in his pajamas, like, is everything okay? We we're like, yeah, it's amazing. We were like screaming our face like we were so excited. And I remember thinking at that time, this was the hardest experience of my life. Why did I have to go through it? The answer is because I'm an accountant. 
So you have tax season. Tax season for me, I fall apart. But it's a breeze. The idea of staying up till 4 or 5 o'clock in the morning, no big deal. I could do that. Doctors have this also, right? You push and push and push because when you get that call, somebody's having a baby at 4 o'clock in the morning, you better be ready. You can't be like, yeah, I'll call you back in two hours. <laughs> You're not calling back in two hours. They're calling back right now. You're having a baby. You know what I'm saying? You have to be conditioned for greatness. And some people, Hashem says, yeah, you're not a good person I'm punishing. You're a good person selected for greatness. That's why, that's, that's why this, is going, this, was, this is happening to you. And you can recognize that. It's such a beautiful outlook on life that takes a very, very long time to see. My friend, he's not a Shmagegi from Brooklyn. He, he's, he's, he's great. I mean, to have that outlook, to have that you're not angry and bitter and upset, you have to come in with a certain amount of, wow. It's unbelievable. I mean, his daughter should have a Shlema. I mean, this is like, it's so hard. But the fact he's able to see this as like the most beautiful gift that Hashem could give him. He's like, could you imagine? I'm saying like, thank you Hashem for cancer. This is so hard and I appreciate that you're selecting me. Unbelievable. It takes an immense amount of gavura to say that. But the message is so clear. Every challenge we go through, whether it's monetarily, whether it's with our children, whether it's with Shadokim, it's hard. It's very difficult. But if you use that challenge, if you use that challenge, you don't let that challenge use you. You own that challenge, you will find that that challenge will define you in the best way possible. If you let that challenge define you, as a greater person, a bigger person, you're not going to be one of these people who's walking around bitter and always like upset at everything and at everybody. And I'm upset at Hashem and I'm upset at these people. I'm upset at the rabbis. I'm upset at, why are you so upset? Oh, because I went through a challenge. We weren't put into this world to eat lollipops and go on swings. Because if we were, <laughs> lollipops would go from the ground and, and we would have swings growing on trees. That's not why we were put here. We put it to be challenged to become the greatest possible versions of ourselves. That's why we're here. And to utilize that to connect to Hashem. When somebody can see that within his challenge, that's the mark of a really great person. The American Cancer Society has an advertisement. They always play this stuff late at night where this lady with cancer says, thanks to cancer, I got my life back. Sounds very... Weird, right? But it's not. She said because since she got cancer and she got, she's in remission, she she appreciates what she has. This is a very good muscle. I'm just thinking when when the rabbi was speaking, it, it takes a second to get this muscle, but a perfect muscle about about tzaddik viralai. Uh, even though there's no ralai, so there was this king, and um, he used to love to go hunting, and he always took his doctor just in case he would get injured. He always took his doctor with him. Well, they went hunting and. The king was running on this horse, like going after the deer, or whatever, and he banged his finger into a tree and he cut it. He lacerated his finger very badly. So he ran over to the doctor and the doctor looked at it and he said, am I going to be okay? And the doctor said, I don't know. Hope so. So they bandaged him up and like a week later he came back to the doctor and he says, my finger is swollen. I have a very bad infection. What are you going to do? He said, okay, we'll, uh, we'll soak it. We'll get the pus out. We'll soak it. We'll put in some Epsom salt. And he, Am I going to be okay? He said, I don't know. We'll see. A week later, he comes back. His finger is green. Full of gangrene. He says, I got to cut your finger off. He says, what? He says, I got to cut your finger off. So I'm going to be okay? He says, I hope so. And he cuts his finger off. 
So when he wakes up from the operation, he says, you are the worst doctor in the whole world. You cut my finger off. I am putting you in the deepest, darkest dungeon to rot. So he takes the doctor and he puts him in this deep, dark dungeon and now he goes hunting without a finger. And they're going through the woods and they get attacked by these savages and the savages kill all the guards. And they take the king and they bring him to their village and they're going to sacrifice him to their god. Cannibals. They're going to sacrifice him to their god. They tie him up. They put him on the Mizbeach. Put him on the altar. The medicine man starts dancing around with his thing. And they take the knife, the sword, and they're going to chop his head off. And all of a sudden the medicine man says, No! No! We cannot bring him as a sacrifice. Why not? Because he's missing a finger. Every, it has no mum. can't be any blemish. It has to be perfect. He is not a good sacrifice. He's missing a finger. Untie him. Let him go. All right. He runs back home. And he's saved. And he comes to the dungeon. And he calls the doctor out. He goes, you know... You're free. He says, why am I free? He says, you saved my life. I saved your life? He says, yeah, because you cut my finger off, the savages didn't kill me and use me as a sacrifice. So the guy in the prison, the doctor says, no, you got it all wrong, king. You saved my life. He says, why? He says, because if I would have been with you, they would have sacrificed me. <laughs> Takes a moment to get it. So, so one guy lost his finger. The other guy's in a dungeon. And that's and two opposite things, and what happened to both of them, which seems Rallo, saved them both. So you don't get to see the whole picture. Hashem is the only one that sees the whole picture. So there's really no such thing as Rallo. Wow. Yeah. Remember that story? Yeah. It's a very good story. From you. I like that story. <laughs> yeah, I, I just want to share something also as you're talking. I'm just thinking. Um, I heard, I heard multiple times, you know, sometimes you hear a message and it, like, it takes like 50 times to sink in. Anybody have that ex- experience? Like you hear it, you're like, oh, I heard this already. And like, oh, I heard this already. And then like on like the 200th time, you're like, oh, that's what it meant. Like, like oh, that's what the message was. So, Rafishal Shafter, he's a fantastic, fantastic speaker. Amazing. He's a storyteller, speaker, very inspirational, just an amazing person. So he speaks in the yeshiva where I teach at night and he, he was always saying, <laughs> It's funny. He was always saying that where you are is exactly where Hashem wants you to be. And he says over like a thousand stories about where you are is exactly where Hashem wants you to be. Like you missed your flight, that's where Hashem wants you. Like you got stuck in traffic. Unless, let's get stuck in traffic. My wife always says, you missed your flight because you left late. Oh, uh, then it's don't, your fault. Don't point your finger to Hashem. <laughs> Hashem, Hashem. Right. That's an, everyone gets it's very only, religious. traffic. Everyone's you, very religious. You leave 20 minutes before the flight, nah, nah, Yeah, then they get, like the guy comes home two hours late. He's like, right. what can I do, Hashem? You know, yeah, Hashem, like, yeah, Hashem. Yeah. Couldn't find parking space. Yeah. <laughs> like you work down the block. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, good. Yeah, so he always talks about like You are where, where, you know, Hashem wants you to be. Okay, so he, he says, and he always says stories like, I, I missed this, I, I went here, I, I find I, I, that's where I was, that's where Hashem wanted me to be. So I heard this thing like, like 500 times. And then, when, before El, I was thinking to myself, like, okay, it's El, like, you know, what is there to work on? So I was thinking, like, the official chapter always talks about the idea that we, where you are is that where Hashem wants you to be. So what does that mean? It means that whatever you have in life, meaning wherever you are in life, that's the metaphor, right? Wherever you are in life, is where Hashem wants you to be. Like, He wants you to have those, your kids and your spouse, 
Although many people would think like different than this, like no, that's where Hashem wants you to be, right? He wants you like married to this person in this situation, dealing with these struggles. This is where Hashem wants you to be. So I decided that for 40 days, right? Because they say take on a Kabbalah for 40 days. For 40 days, I'm going to just live with this idea that where I am is where Hashem wants me to be. So what that means is, is that exactly what you're saying is that I'm, I'm, that means I have to be happy with everything that's going on in my life. So I'm going to like truly try to be as happy and stress-free living in the moment. Like Hashem, this is where you want me to be. Like you want me to be dealing with like I do forensic accounting. Like, you want me dealing with, like, this peasant and this court and this deadline and this stress? This is where you want me to be. Like, this tax season, these 500 returns that I have to get out by tomorrow, this is where you want me to be. And I can tell you that the first couple days, it was literally me just saying it. Like, oh, Hashem, this is where you want me to be. Like, Hashem, this is where you want me to be. But I I decided that no matter what happens, I'm not getting upset. I'm going to be really, really calm. I'm going to talk, like, really soft. And I'm just going to be like, this is where Hashem wants me to be. And I would tell people, which might sound weird, but for me this works, like, you're not going to get me angry right now, because this is where Hashem wants me to be. And there was one meeting where there was a person who called in on the phone, and he has like a certain argument that he always says that he's wrong. He always argues on something that I say, a certain thing in business, and he's wrong. But he, he always says the same argument. Right? And every time he says it, I get very upset. And I, I would say to him, like, oh, you're saying the wrong thing. And I was, no. And we, you know, go back and forth. So during, during, oh, we were in a meeting and he called in and he goes, hey, and I believe. And I said, okay, right now, you are the Satan. <laughs> because you, you don't understand. Him, you told him I that? told him on the phone. I said, you don't understand something. <laughs> right now, this is where Hashem wants me to be. He does not want me to be angry. So you are testing me right now because that's the only purpose why you've made this phone call. So uh, I'm going to very calmly disagree with you once again and uh, hang up the phone in a nice way. And uh, we're going to let you go. And you could call us back after my 40 days is up because then we could continue this conversation. <laughs> but for right now, at this moment... <laughs> This is where Hashem wants me to be. I'm going to be really calm. And I have to tell you, my kids responded. Like, my kids responded. Like, the way I was talking to them was like, oh, Shafala, you know, like, it's time to go upstairs. They're like, where's my daddy? You know, like, like, who are you? What's going on over here? The people around me responded. Because it was, it was internalizing this idea. Like, there, there, there is nothing... Yeah, challenges are challenges. Yeah, you become an accountant, you're going to have tax season. So what are you going to do? You're going to fall apart every tax season again? You're going to get upset again? My uh, my secretary, who's here, her name is Riva, um, a.k.a. Shani, uh, a.k.a. Shani, a.k.a. Esti. Uh, everyone knows her as Esti because you all RSVP to Esti. It's not Esti. Her name is actually Riva. And her name is actually not Riva. It's actually Shani. But we call her Riva. Um, but she's sitting in the back over here. So I hope she's not getting any ideas how sweet I am um, when I'm under stress because she knows the truth. But in, in theory, there is this idea that, yeah, this is where Shem wants you to be. So just chill out. Yeah, you have a stress in your life. So chill out. Like, what are you going to do with the fact that you're running late? Nothing. Just learn to relax in traffic. Just learn to crank up the music and play your favorite songs. Like, Pesach is always going to be stressful. Like, I don't know if women picked up on this. Like, it's been going on for a couple thousand years. It's going to be stressful for the next few hundred years. Also, I'm saying it's going to be stressful. So, like, 
preparing yourself and saying, God, I, I know you want me to prepare for Pesach, right? So I'm going to choose to do it besimcha, happy, and without stress, because, God, it's Pesach every year, I get to prepare for it. You know what I'm saying? Tax season, I get to prepare for it. All those moments in our lives, we get to prepare for it. And it's, it's if you like, it's very hard to, to actually do it, but it's like, it's like, it's, it's your potential coming out. You could say I'm going to be calm when you're when it's a stressful you know situation, but you probably won't if you don't really practice this. If you don't practice it, you're not going to be able to do it. It's when you practice the emotions during non-emotional times, then you're able to be like, yeah, this is stressful. Yeah, my husband is running late tonight. Okay, should I flip out on him because that's what he's expecting, and he'll be like, okay, here she goes again. All right, you know, or should I just like be calm? Yeah, he's running late. Okay, meetings run overtime. Yeah, somebody's calling again during supper. Okay, fine, chill out. Chill out. <laughs> My gosh, chill out. You know, one of the hardest things to do when building a home is to be chill. Just calm down. Not chill doesn't like there's no stresses in life. Of course there's stresses. We all have stresses. So what? Like, just be besimcha. Live your life with happiness. You, you know, I have a picture when me and my wife were living in, in Eretz Yisrael after we got married. We were making Pesach. A young couple, no kids. We were making Pesach by ourselves. We were having guests over. And we have pictures of us. I told my wife at the time, I said, we're taking pictures of this. It's 4 o'clock in the morning. We're making those, um, those, uh, those bubby blintzes, you know, like whatever, the kosher, kosher for Pesach homemade blintzes. Because like, my family had like no... Uh, we didn't eat anything out of the house, no mishing, no nothing until Rabbi Wallace corrupted us by taking us on the Pesach program. But until then, <laughs> until then, like Coca-Cola was trade. Coca-Cola would, for us had like pig in it, like on Pesach, like we wouldn't touch it, you know. I wouldn't eat shmura matzah in somebody else's house where they got the same shmura matzah from the same baker. We didn't do that. Now <laughs> we're eating pizza, uh, pizza on Pesach and calling it matzah. Kosher Pesach. Kosher Pesach, whatever they call it. Okay, so um, yeah, we're doing that religion now. <laughs> I'm not sure. I, I'm not sure I was going with it, but yeah. So we oh, so it was it was four o'clock in the morning, and we were music up, making those bubby blintzes, and I was like, we're taking a picture of this, put in our album from the years that we lived in Israel, because I want to remember what preparing for Pesach should look like when we have kids and jobs and mortgages and all that other crazy stuff that everyone has to deal with. But for these moments, let's at least set up this is how we prepare for face. Like, it's fun and we're throwing flour at each other. No flour because it's face off. You know what I'm saying? Like, we're, we're, we're having fun. We're doing it because this potato, is what it is. Potato starch. Potato starch. Everything's potato starch. It's like potato starch and meat and meat and potato starch and potato starch and meat. That's it. Life is hectic. It's like you get to choose every day. You're going to be happy. You're going to be chilled out. You're going to be basimcha. You come home late and you had a, a stressful day. Your wife is not your punching bag. Your kids are not your punching bag. You don't get to take it out on them. Your husband's not your punching bag. Your husband's not your punching bag. <laughs> he's not. He's not. I'm saying you have to live your life in control of your situation. And it's so easy to say, yeah, I could do that. Sure, I could do that. It's like when everyone's dating, everyone's a Balmidos. Like on paper, everyone's a Balmidos. I'm looking for a Balmidos. I'm a Balmidos. We're looking for Balmidos. My parents are Balmidos. It's when you get down to it, it's like, ah, not so much Midos. Like in theory, I am. But in practice, I'm really stressed and I hate everybody, right? It's, it's like, when, they, when it's practical, it's like, how's the family? Bali Midos. Are they really? No, they're crazy, you know? Like, in theory, it's all there. In practice, it's very, very hard. So when you get down to that, that's where it takes a lot of practice. And understanding that Tzadik Viralo, like the Rabbi is saying, is not 
No, it's not bad. It's, it's yeah, it's it's it's, it's it challenging. Looks, it looks bad. It looks bad. It's hard. Missing your flight is very stressful. You know, coming home late is very stressful. But what's even harder is your wife who's upset at you when you come home late. It doesn't make it any easier. It just makes it much harder. But having people that are living their lives with a certain understanding, like this is where I was supposed to be, and this is my job, and this is how I'm, it makes things so much easier. You know, like in business, when you're stressed, you cannot make a logical decision. You're, you're so frustrated. You're just like, I just want to, like, fine, do it. I can't even think straight. It's like when you're calm and you're, you, you know, you're calm, cool, and collected, then you're able to do it. My father would say, he's like, this is like a two cigar problem. You know, like this is a two cigar problem. He'll sit back and like he'll smoke two cigars. Oh, I have a solution. Like, yeah, now I've just thought it through. Now a bunch of guys are going to go home. Yeah, cigars. that's what he said. Yeah, he said I should buy cigars. <laughs> Take this out of context. Yeah, that's that's okay. the idea. Let's get to this last question over here. Um, Forget about that idea of questions from the crowd. We'll do it. <laughs> we'll do the questions. Uh, <laughs> uh, okay. All right. Here we go. Question is like I'm, this. I'm in the moment. You're I'm in the good. moment. I'm yeah. good. <laughs> okay. I'm good. I didn't expect that question. Okay. No. Uh, <laughs> all right. Here's the question is as follows. Um, this is a question that. Unfortunately, I get all too often, um, but I want to hear the rabbi's answer on this um, as follows. All right, you have um, you have a couple that calls up, and they are having they're having some stresses in their marriage to the point where they're talking about separation and you know things things that follow that. Question is, they have children. Should a age younger children? At what point? Should a couple call it quits? Like, we're not just doing this for the kids. Or, is there a reason to stay married only for the children? Is that a good idea? Is that not a good idea? Um, That's a very... It's a loaded question. Well, two-hour question. It's a two-hour question. Let's, let's do the 10-minute version. Um, if they're fighting... Well, the, the, the question really is... Do you have a? Is it better to have a dysfunctional, to have parents that are divorced and each one of them is functioning, she's functioning and he's functioning, or to have them together dysfunctioning? Um, I find after teaching forty-two years, kids better. Well, this is a, this is a question I've asked kids. Really, kids would rather have their parents both home, even if they're not getting, even if the father's sleeping in the on the couch in the living room and the mother's in the other room, because. Kids have a picture that that I'm coming home and I have a mother and a father. And if they come home and there's not a mother and a, and a father, it's very disruptive. I have asked, I, I, I deal with a lot of kids that are from divorced homes, and I've asked many times, would you rather your parents are throwing things at each other, but they're both home? Or you go to your father on weekends, every second weekend, when that's what, and, and 90% will say, I'd rather my parents are both home. I'd rather have my parents both home because there's a thing about a child that I go home, I have a mommy and a tati. My, my, my tati doesn't live in one state and my mommy lives in another state. That's, that, that's what they feel, but I don't think they're right. I think that someone who grows up in a very dysfunctional home and sees their parents fighting all the time, um, it's a lot of trauma and better for them not to see that and to go, my opinion, to go to them, to be by their mother, let's say, during the week, whatever the deal is, uh, but to to go to the parents separately, I think if you if you if you if you watch your parents fight and you watch this dysfunction and disrespecting each other, 
then that's what your marriage is going to look like. Because the, the training that we have in marriage is from our parents. The yeshiva doesn't teach you, no one teaches you, it's what you see. And even though while the fight is going on, you swear it'll never happen by you, and I'm going to be the opposite type of parent, most of the time it doesn't turn out that way. You're either going to turn out to be the best parent in the world, because you're sensitive to it, or you're going to, it, it's, so the more dysfunctional time you spend in a dysfunctional home, the more dysfunctional you become. So if, 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 if it came to my table, um, I would tell them that if they could be nice to each other, um, then maybe they should stay married for the children, because you had those children. So it's not a resp- it's a responsibility. It's not like, well, we don't get along, so like, why do I have to stay married because of my children? Well, you got married and you had those children. So that's part of the responsibility of bringing up those children. But if, so it depends really why the marriage isn't working. If they're not respectful to each other, and it's dysfunctional, and there's yelling, and there's screaming, and there's abuse, they need to be divorced. If it's just they don't like each other, well, that's just too bad. You, you don't like each other, but you can't make your kids pay the price for that. And until uh, your kids are married, or even after that, I, I don't, I, I'm not in Shalom bias like the rabbi is, as much as the rabbi is. I'm going to say something that we can sit here all night and debate, and I'm sure there'll be people that will willing to debate this. But I feel, I'm, I'm not that old yet, but I'm also not that young. I feel that any woman, any woman, and any man, if they have midos, and real midos, and they have hachna, how do you say hachna in English? Um, it's not modesty. Um, Submissiveness. What was the word? Humility. Humility can be married to each other. I believe that. Ah, oh, she's not pretty, she's not like that. Because there has to be a little attraction, I'm not saying that. But I think if a woman is a balas midos, and a man has midos, that any two human beings who are brought up correctly, who have respect for other people, that they can make it work. They can make it work. Can make it work. I'm not saying it's going to be my zivug, my soul partner, but they can make it work that it's not a dysfunctional relationship. People who have dysfunctional relationships in marriage have also dysfunctional relationships in a lot of other places. Good people can be married. And that, that's, that's my opinion. So if, if I'm wrong, let's say I'm wrong, and you can't take any woman with superstar midos and any guy with superstar midos, but one thing I can tell you, that the two of them, if they are married, they're not going to yell and scream at each other and throw things at each other and disrespect each other. And that's what the children can't see. And therefore, I'd rather she goes, she's home with her mother, goes to her father, he takes them out, goes back to the mother. It's, it's, not a, it's, it's a very tough thing, it's a very hard thing. I did not have divorced parents, so I don't really know what I'm talking about. Because I'm only talking about from experience of a third person having divorced parents, and I usually do not talk about stuff that I did not experience myself. Because if you're not in it, you don't really you, re- you really don't understand it. And if I was in a room of divorced kids, they might be yelling at me and saying, "No, you never allowed you never allowed to stay home." Or again, I'm telling you that most children they want mommy and tati home, and the minute mommy and tati are not home, and the, the mother and father are split, to them. It's a broken, I don't like that word. They use it. I come from a broken home. 
When a child says, I come from a broken home, where does that come from, that word? I come from a home where my parents are separated or divorced. Because in their, their conception of things, if I don't have a mother and father together at home, I'm, it's broken. That's a kid's perception. It's just Their perception is their reality. So if we could keep the parents together, and you could say, well, why, it's, not my, it's not my problem, we don't get along. But the truth is, if you, once you decide to have a child, you have a responsibility to give that child a home. And you have a responsibility to give that child a functional, happy place to come home. And you don't have a right to make that home a broken home. So it's really, I'm, answer, I'm answering from two sides of my mouth. The child would rather that is, so my father sleeps on the couch, okay. But my father's home at night. And my mother's home. And that's really what they want. But from the parents' place, if you really can't get along with each other, and you're hurting each other in front of the children, that's the worst thing. you, you got to break it up. They can't see that. They can't see that because I deal with a lot of trauma and post-trauma of watching your parents, especially your parents not getting along, has a huge, huge, long effect on a person. So that was, that's my just my experience. But then again, my uh, disclaimer is that I didn't come from such a home, so I really don't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> that's the truth. That's my feeling from the outside. But I'm not on the inside. I'm sure if someone who comes from that home could probably answer this question better than me. Uh, all right, so... Wow. Okay, so this is a, a, a very, very heavy question, which, um, before I tell you my answer, I just want to tell you that in my experience, um, which... It's people ask me like, "How's the marriage business going?" People, it's like a business, you know. Like, unfortunately, it's a, it's, it's a little a bit. Big business. It's a big business. It's too. It's too. Uh, it's way too busy. Um, I could tell you many stories, which obviously I won't say um, in public or or on tape. But I could tell you that in a general sense, people give up on relationships sometimes. Sometimes. Like, like they just, you know, need a new pair of shoes. Like, oh, yeah, you know, whatever it is, what it is. All right, that's it. It's over. And there are certain cases that I've been involved with, some of them which actually came from... Together. From, yeah, together, from Rabbi Wallerstein. And, like, it, it had... It, 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 they, they ended, and I'm, like, scratching my head because the issue or the issues were so... Ridiculous. Ridiculous. I mean, like, you could have overcome these issues with... Any amount of work you could have made, you could have made this marriage not just get along. Like you could have actually made this marriage grow and flourish and made it and made it happen. Um, I had one specific case where a couple got divorced very shortly after they got married. And when I spoke to the father of the girl. I said, "If you let this girl come home, your daughter, like you're just an accomplice to the crime here. I mean, like this is just—it's so ridiculous what they're fighting over. It's just so insane that this marriage is ending. That was in that specific case." But what I will say is that we don't tend to realize often enough how people are a product of their home. The person, I teach Hassan, my wife teaches Kalas. She's really, 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 really good, right? So when we're teaching her, right, nodding, right? So, right, so when, we're, when, we're, when we're teaching somebody, people say, all right, here's my son or here's my daughter. Okay, so I raised them for 23 years. So now in eight hours, please go undo everything I've done. Hatsaha. 
You know, then they call up, right? Like, why didn't you undo my child's selfishness and their narcissism and their anger? Hello, you just put into them for 24 years. Like, how are you supposed to undo that in eight hours? That's not, that's not how this works, right? So people don't realize that the, the person getting married, like I always say, you, you, you can't divorce yourself. And who are you? You're the, you're the product of what you're bringing into marriage. And where are you coming from? You're coming from a home. Which means that when you start a home, there's a certain responsibility to the people in the home. The rabbi said that he deals with a lot of people who are post-trauma. I can tell you I deal with a lot of people that are post-drama. Right? It, it, it's true, right? What did you grow up with? Oh, it was Yehudim. You know, I guess, I mean, it was crazy every night. So, yeah, I also deal with the, with the trauma side and all of that. But the drama side is sometimes even worse because there's no... There's no Compass as to what's normal and how you treat somebody and any of that, and therefore you're, it's like just a downward spiral into what that future relationship is going to become. But I once had a conversation with somebody who has been Masader. Like he organized, I believe, I believe it was over three thousand or four thousand divorces. He, he he arranged them. It's like sort of like the Undertaker of, of marriages. And I was talking to him and I said, "How do you know?" when it's time to, you know, to call it quits. So he told me that he has a Kabbalah from Ramosha Feinstein. And he said, there's two sides of the coin. One is the intensity of what's going on at home. Exactly what the rabbi was saying. The intensity of what's going on at home. And the second thing is the willingness to change. And I can tell you that there's really both sides over here. He told me a story, which I'll repeat. He said there was a woman whose husband was a, a drunk. He was a shaker. And he said, every night, this guy used to come home, totally drunk, you know, totally shaker. And this woman would talk to her friends every week, they got like this little, little get-together. And they would talk, and they would all make fun of this woman's husband. Like, oh, your husband's drunk, I saw him by the kiddish, you know, they all make fun of him. And after, over the years, they all built up like this little alliance of like these nine women versus this one poor guy who didn't realize it, that every week... These women would say, oh, your husband's drunk. Why don't you divorce the bum and get rid of the guy? Every single week they would say this. One week, this woman stood up and she said, I want to talk to, you know, my little, my friends over here. And she said, do you guys realize that my husband, he's totally drunk. He comes home, he's like high as a kite, drunk. I once heard, okay, whatever, I won't get there. Yeah, he's hot, he's drunk. He comes home, he's all tipsy. He says, he walks in the door. He's like, I love you. You're so beautiful. You're the most amazing thing to happen to me. She's like, all night, this guy's like singing my song. You know, like he just comes, he's on the couch. He's keep throwing drinking, up. keep drinking. She, yeah. <laughs> she pours it. And she's pouring the wine. So she said, after all these years, you women are all telling me I should get divorced. Right? It's like, how many of you, your husband comes home and he's thinking, you're so great and so wonderful and it's so lucky and he's crying. I love him, but you don't, you don't understand. Everyone's going to go home and say, what did they say by the sheer? You should smoke, smoke and drink. Smoke cigars and drink. And smoke drink. and drink. We're going to be in big trouble. We're going to be in big trouble. We're going to be... <laughs> so this, this person told me, he said that this woman told, told her friends, she said, every person has a level that they can be subtle, that they can manage. And every person has to be able to ask themselves, is this tolerable for me at this time? The other side of things is where a person has the ability or the will to change. And I can tell you some stories of people who you couldn't get them to move an inch. I had a couple that came to me once the night before the wedding. 
I told them they should they should cancel the wedding the, the next day. It was canceled. Why? Did nothing. Couldn't get one side to move an inch. Nothing. This is not a marriage. This is just you're heading right off a cliff. Let's just stop this before it begins. Uh, we've been by weddings where the rabbi says to me, "So how long do you think this one's gonna last?" And I'm like, "We're sitting there dancing, you know." <laughs> I postdated my check five years. <laughs> right, Mister and. Mrs. I postdated it. Yeah, so they cash it in five. They're still together in five years in cash. You could keep the money, <laughs> right? No, I'm, I'm, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. It's not real. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> but yeah, if if you have the ability to change and the will to change, if people are willing to change, I can tell you some of the most amazing stories of people. Midos. Yeah, it's 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 midos, and it's the ability, like you said, hachna, like be able to have the humility. To say to yourself that you don't know everything and you're not the smartest person in God's green planet and your wife is saying something that's smart and you should take her seriously and your husband is not as stupid as you think he is and he's doing pretty good and you should respect him a little more and if you built the person up then they would respond and you don't criticize your spouse because you're just putting them down. All of these things are so easy to say and they're so hard to do. Because we package all of our words and emotions, and the other person gets into their emotions, and we become entrenched in our positions, and therefore it's very hard to hear the other person what they're saying. If we take a minute to realize that the person you married, you saw something good in them, and they have a lot of amazing things that are underneath them, and if you're willing to spend a little bit of time to bring it out, that is yours. That is your husband, and that is your wife. And you get to wake up in the morning and say, wow. Thank you, Hashem, for giving me my spouse. You gave me my wife. Instead of thinking like, how long is this going to last? You know, am I in this for the kids or the money? Like, why am I still sticking around? And when you're able to just like say to yourself, hold on. I, I need to be machnia myself, to lower myself, to come off my high horse. I'm not the smartest person in the world. Get a little bit of guidance to see that I'm doing things the right way. Amazing things can happen. Amazing things can happen. I always tell people, like, I deal with marriages, I don't deal with divorces at all. And I can tell you some of those amazing, amazing people I've met are the strongest people. They came in with hardships. Yes, it's difficult. And they entrenched in their position. It's almost like too dear, like they locked horns and they're just stuck, which is how many marriages go. They become like, like stalemated. Like I said this, he said this, and then we're just stuck. And they become just like, I don't know where to go. And if you learn to untangle those horns and put in some really good things into your relationship, within such a short amount of time, you see it blossom and grow. And you take couples that date, they date, you know, five times, ten times, are like, ooh, like they're gaga over each other. You know, you can't even, they don't even know what planet they're on. Like during their engagement, like they're on cloud nine. And they get married and they're like, oh, it's you? <laughs> You're the one? Oh, what did I do? A big mistake. Like, you were so, so like, gaga over this person. Why can't you appreciate your spouse now? You dated the person. Like, when, when your date pulled up, when you were dating, I have to do my hair and my makeup and go get a manicure and pedicure. I have to go to the spa. He's, I'll be ready in nine hours. You know, now he comes home and he's like, um, you know, like, he thinks you're the, like, the, the cleaning lady. Like, is my wife home? Yeah, it's me. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, like, put something on. Like, the idea, your husband comes home, like, he should present himself. I'm home. You're the most important person in my life. It should reflect that in your actions, in what you do, in your tone, in what you say. We don't, like, people don't do that. So relationships just slowly crumble. But if we did that, if we got dressed up, I'm not only talking to women, I'm talking to men. Like, if you treated yourself the way your Rebbe, or your friend, or your teacher, or somebody that you respected was coming home, that's how it would be. I, I, I so often, I once had, I'll tell you one story. I had a couple that was sitting by me. 
And they were talking about their daughter who was about 22 years old. And they were arguing like children. And I said to the parents who were about, I don't know, 50, 55 years old. I said, I have a question for you. If your daughter would see you behaving the way you're behaving right now, what would she say? So the wife says, she would be so embarrassed. And she would like, she'd be like, Mom, Dad, please, you're embarrassing me. Please don't talk like that. I said, I think it's even worse than that. If your daughter was four years old and she was talking the way you're talking, as a parent, you would say, we don't talk like that. We don't behave like that. Where did you grow up? What type of home is this? I was like, and here you guys are talking to each other like, like big babies, like 50-year-old, 4-year-olds. It's just the more sophisticated version and the cursing and the yelling and the threats and all of that. You're just a big baby. You never grew up. The ability to be respectful, have midos and humility, and realize that you chose this person. They entrusted you and you entrusted them with everything. All your money, all your emotions, all your time. So why not make it work? Why can't you work on what you set yourself to do in the beginning? You signed a contract with them. Pull out that contract. What did I say I'm going to do? I'll be machabda yeser migufay. I'm going to respect you more than I respect myself. I'm going to be respectable. I'm going to provide. I'm going to learn. I'm going to daven. You signed up to that. So why can't you do that? Because she made fun of me. Okay. It's like two kids on a playground. You made fun of me. So therefore I'm going to make fun of her. Okay. Very nice. Like we ready to move on? And so many times when I sit with couples, they talk. Like I'm like, okay, now we're ready to start. Now we're ready to start. Now we're ready to like, okay, good. Everybody yelled and screamed. Now we're ready to get started. Okay. What does your marriage need? Let's put it in. Come back. You'll see crazy change. You fell in love with this person in five dates. Why can't you fall in love with them over five dates? No, because they said something not nice. You could do it. You should be dating your spouse. You should be dating your kids. My kids always, they come up to me, Daddy, can we have a date? Yeah, I put it in the calendar. I take my kids out. We go on dates. Why not? I'm saying this is an important person, right? Why shouldn't I spend time with them? It's only when you're trying to impress, that's when I have time to date you. No, it's on my bill. Go out, spend time. That's what you do. I don't make my eight-year-old pay for it. No. <laughs> Good. The jokes are starting to hit. She doesn't have your credit card. She doesn't have your credit card. I'm saying that's what it is. Marriage is one of the most intense, <laughs> intense relationships. relationships. It's real. It's the most... It will make you discover more about yourself than anything else in life. When you could appreciate what your spouse is telling you and they're doing it respectfully and you could put in... And all this talk about how long and the clock is ticking and we don't have to talk about that. And that's what it is. It's about building. And this, this was such an awesome, awesome, amazing night. I want to just reiterate thank you to Avi and Esther Wiederman for putting this together. I want to, I want to, uh, I want to, I want to close out just two minutes so you can take home a better story than the one with the king even. Um, so, I, I, again, I believe very much that one of the problems that in marriage is that we're always, we're always working on changing the other person. Always about, you need to change. And the husband's like, you need to change. And you're trying to make you better instead of working on yourself. If each one works on themselves and changes themselves, then, then it'll definitely work. Everyone's busy trying to change the other one. So there's a story, because you just reminded me of this story. The story about this guy who was always drunk. And he would sneak out of the house at 2 in the morning, every morning, to go to the bar. And his wife really got fed up with it. She said, listen to me, if you do this one more time, I'm telling you right now, it's over. Our marriage is over. So if you go to the bar one more one, it's over. 
Anyway, okay, I love you. I'm not, I'm not going to the bar. He wasn't the guy who drinks and comes home saying, I love you. I'm not going to the bar. I'm not doing it. They just say, I love you. They just like, two o'clock comes. He's dying for a drink. She's fast asleep. He sneaks out of the house. He goes to the bar. He drinks himself up. He comes back home. He's like, oh my gosh, in the morning, she's going to divorce me. She's going to smell all the liquor on my breath. What should I do? So he goes into the kitchen, he takes this big thing of glass, he read once, and if you drink a lot of water, it'll take away the alcohol, and that way when he gets up in the morning, he'll look normal. So he takes this big crystal thing, of, of, of he fills it up with water, and he, and he drinks it down, and he's climbing, going up the steps, and he even wants to show her that she gets up in the morning. Instead of going to the bar, look, I had a pitcher of water, I, I straightened myself out. And as he goes up the steps, he falls down the steps because he was drunk, and the glass splatters, breaks, splatters all over the place, and the splinters fly into his face, and he's bleeding from like a hundred cuts. And he's like, oh my God, what am I going to tell her now? So I'm going to tell her that I got up in the middle of the night, because I didn't, I love you, and I don't want to go to the bar, and I fell down the steps, and look what happened to me. So he goes into the bathroom, and Baruch Hashem, he has a box of band-aids, a hundred band-aids, because that's how many cuts he had. And he looks in the mirror, he's got forehead, his cheek, his all over his face, and he's bandaging everything else. He's got his story. Tomorrow morning I wake up, look what a great guy I am, right? Fine. In the morning, she's shaking him up. Charlie, get up and get out of my house. You drunk, you went to the bar again. He goes, no, no, I swear, my mother, my father, I swear. No, I love you, I listen to you. No, I, she goes, you're a liar. You went to the bar last night. He goes, no, I went to the kitchen and I fell and I got cut and, and just for you and don't throw me out. She goes, you're a liar. He says, why are you saying that? She says, come with me to the bathroom. She says, okay. Comes into the bathroom. There are a hundred band-aids on the mirror. <laughs> Stop fixing the guy in the mirror, the reflection. If you want it to work, you got to work on yourself. Thank you very much. You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.